I have two things that I think, especially as we are in this stage of our life, share your joy, communicate your love of the work with others, share rather than teach, motivate rather than lecture, include rather than talk to. Teaching implies a hierarchy. Sharing is between equals. Dare to create yourself anew. Heartbreak, failure, being sidelined, all of these are part of life. It is how we act on these, manage them, learn, move through them, and dare to try again in strengthened position that matters. And I think that is for any of us at any stage of our life, particularly now. You know, dare to create yourself anew. Welcome to the Boomer Woman's Podcast. I'm your host, Agnes Knowles. Boomer women. Are we wise women? Are we mavens? Are we crones? Hell yeah. And we're also still curious, fun-loving, interesting, the list goes on. This podcast is for you. My guests are folk who have a message for our demographic. And if you want to hear a specific message, let me know and I'll find the guests. This podcast is also a conversation. We women know its value, we know how to do it, and we must perpetuate the art form. I try and let my guests have the greater say, and usually we fit in a good laugh or two. Listen in now to today's guest. There's an expression most of us have heard before, what you see is what you get. Online here, you might know it as WYSIWYG. Online here, that might be true. When it comes to people, it rarely is. Today's guest is absolutely a WYSIWYG defier. Tina Davidson is a highly regarded American composer who creates music that stands out for its emotional depth and and lyrical dignity. Tina Davidson is also a woman, a mother, an author, a person with an unusual past. That's her story, and I'll let her tell it. In the meantime, let me introduce her. Tina Davidson, welcome to the Boomer Woman's Podcast. I'm so delighted to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. Well, thank you for coming on. This is going to be very interesting. Uh, Tina, I'm actually going to start in the middle. Tell us about your musical talents and your career as a composer. I listened to some of your music, and it's really expressive. It's so emotional. Mm, Thank you. Well, I started playing the piano when I was five. And by this time I was seven, I was uh, practicing an hour a day, if you can believe it. My mother did have to bribe me a little bit. She bribed me with five cents an hour. And then I renegotiated to 10 cents. And I always had a sense that I worked through my childhood, (laughs) Well, um, but I think I was a bit of a reluctant musician. I loved to read and and that was something that uh, I did a lot of. Although when I look back on it now, I think both reading and making music and being involved in music was a very safe place for me. It was sort of like I could wrap myself in that world and kind of hide out. So I think that there was some deep, 
personal needs for going into music. But when I was, I, I studied in high school, I studied music, and then I took a year abroad uh, before college and studied at conservatories. And so I came to college really a pretty good pianist, but I never thought about composing. I had actually never heard any music written by women composers. And in a funny way, when you don't have an example, in, a role model, an example in front of you, sometimes it's hard to imagine what is not there. So, uh, or imagine what could be there if it was there, <laughs> but, <laughs> but you know, there was no role model for me. So I started to compose extremely reluctantly. But after taking this course for about three months, it suddenly was an obsession. It's all I wanted to do was to compose music. It was sort of as if, you know, if you look out into the forest of life and there are all these paths and you can pick them all, but there was only one that was illuminated and that was composing music. And when I left college, I really gave a lot of consideration to whether that was um, a plausible career for me. Could I earn money? Could I uh, survive in the real world doing this? And what I decided is that if I didn't pursue this as a, a life choice, I would be bitter. At the end of my life, I would be bitter. And I would rather fail than be bitter and or have to change course in the midstream of my life and then to be bitter. I had seen uh, people around me wanting to do things, particularly women, but feeling like life kept them from doing it. And there was a kind of bitterness about them. And I didn't want to experience that. At any point in time, did you realize that you might well become a role model for a younger woman? Certainly not then. I had no idea, although I had a very strong sense of myself being a woman. Uh, growing up, uh, graduating from college in the mid-70s um, and 80s, it was really a time when women were starting to articulate and push back about sort of 1950s cultural ideas of how women should act and uh, feeling very strengthened by others doing it and myself doing it. It was it was very empowering, but it never really occurred to me that I would be a role model. So that is kind of a lovely turn of events. And have you met younger women now who say like, oh, my goodness, because of you, I really felt I had a path? Not quite, but I've had quite a few people who've written their dissertations, their PhD dissertations on my music, which is it's kind of odd to have somebody else go through my music and analyze it in a way that I never would do. And they would say, oh, I saw this connection and that connection. I said, oh, really? That's very interesting. Because, you know, I, when I compose, I experience the music as I'm writing it, but I'm not thinking in terms of, I hear relationships, I sense when a piece is landing and needs to land, and then when it needs to start up again. But I'm not scientifically analyzing that as I go through it. 
it's more like living your life and then somebody writes about uh, an autobiography of you and they say, oh, do you see all these connections and all the things? And you're going, no, I was paying attention to my life. I didn't see those connections. Yeah, and I should think that interpretation really does depend on the listener to to a great extent. The reason I say that is I, I remember in high school, we had a music teacher who would play usually classical pieces, but she'd have us lie on our backs on the floor, eyes closed. She'd turn off the lights and play the music. And then our music assignment was interpreting how that mm-hmm. touched us. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. all our stories were different, of course. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Yes. Well, I think that's what I love about the creative arts and about writing music. I am trying to articulate and embody my experience. And I hope that when you hear it, you will be reminded of something about yourself. I'm not interested that the listener knows about me. Because once you hear it, it becomes yours. And there's a kind of wonderful collaborative experience that happens with music. I am always writing for an ensemble that takes my music and then puts, breathes life into it. And it sort of becomes there, they, comes theirs. It, they have to collaborate with my music to create it. And then in a performance situation, they have to express it somehow to the audience. And then it belongs to the audience. The audience then is sort of collaborating with the experience to understand it through their own lens. And that's something that I really value. That not that people get me when they listen to my music, but that they get themselves. Okay, that's that's interesting. That's that's uh, yeah. Now, just looking at your website and some of the information there, you traveled quite a bit. Did do you think that that affected your composition? Oh, for sure. And it certainly affected me personally. I was born in Sweden. I lived in Istanbul, Turkey for three years, and we traveled a great deal at that time. My mother and stepfather were, I always say, they were adventurers disguised as professors. So (laughs) they really just wanted to adventure, but they got jobs in different countries. Then uh, in high school, I lived in Germany for a year. My mother was a director of an exchange program. And two years later, I lived in Israel for a year. She was another, she was a director of another exchange program. So I had these two amazing years where I lived in Germany and then I lived in Israel. And of course, as an American, you know, I, I had gone through high school and, you know, they hadn't really taught much about World War II except sort of, you know, by no, you know, there was World War II, but I really didn't understand the conflicts at all. And then when I was in my last year of high school, uh, my parents were down in Santiago, Chile, and they lived down there for a year and a half. And I was in college, so I I visited and spent you know several weeks down there, uh, although I didn't live there. And then I have to say in my adult life that I feel like I've sort of been trying to to explore the United States rather than Europe. And I I have a great love for this country and the beauty of the country. 
Well, and I'm in Canada, and I think both both countries embrace so many other cultures mm -hmm. that you probably don't need to go too far afield to uh, to experience right. it. And I think uh, certainly my years in Istanbul, where I was six to nine, I think really informed some of the music that I write. I'm always hearing a little bit of sort of more of a, the way they slide tones or microtonal or, or sort of out of tune. I, I'm always hearing a little bit of that in the music. I'm now wishing I had more musical knowledge because it sounds like <laughs> these are some areas to explore. Um, I'm going to fast forward, though. Uh, you had a daughter. Yes. Did, did that add to or intensify the expressiveness of your music? Oh, boy. You know, I, I've been asked many times by younger composers, should I have children? And I have a section in my memoir, let your heart be broken where I address this. And I, I always say, have your babies or tie your tubes. And each one is a loss. It's not like you can have both things. So when you have your babies, when I only had one, you lose so much time and ability to manage your work. I mean, children take a huge effort. On the other hand, not having a child, I think I would have never started to really connect with myself and do the work that I needed to actually start writing music that was more and more authentic. So in my book, I always say that my daughter was my great opportunity. I, and I think a lot of parents feel that way, that they they start connecting to history more, to future, because the future now really means something to them. Because when they die, their kids will be living in that future. But she just offered the opportunity for me to decide to handle some things in my life that were really pressing on me, some uh, some difficult earlier childhood stuff. And I just had this sense when I was holding her that I could just, you know, it was sort of like door number one or door number two, you know, behind door number one is you can let your daughter have all of this stuff that you have sort of in its rawest form. It can be her legacy, sort of the way it was my legacy from what I got from my mother. Or door number two was I can really start to work on it. Uh, do some therapy, really start to dig in and try to understand some of these past traumas and put them uh, so they're not so front and center in my life. Uh, so she was an enormous opportunity for me. And and we're going to get to your story right away. But one more question is strictly woman to woman. You were also single parent. Yes. How did that work? Um, I got divorced when Cassie was seven and I didn't remarry again until she was 16 or 17. I, you know, my heart goes out to all mothers who are working, all parents, you know, because husbands now are so much more involved and many times put down their work to care for the children. It is like building a house of cards and you never know when the wind is going to 
blow them all down. You know, it's a snow day or she's suddenly sick or, you know, what happens during summer? How do you cover care? How do you find time to work? And I was very tunnel visioned at that point about my work. I was very sort of laser focused on composing. So as much time as I spent with her and did things with her and played with her, she also felt that there was part of me that she couldn't reach, that there were times when I was unavailable. I think more not physically as much as when I was really preoccupied with my work. And it was kind of, you know, in my daily life, I sort of like I had this double life. It was my composing life, which was very intense and very focused. And then my daily life. And sometimes my composing life would follow me around while I was doing my daily life. And I was very distracted or or disconnected. And she definitely felt that. So I think... um it's it's always such a joy and it's always such a juggling act. Um, and I think there's no way to really feel like you're doing a completely good job in both arenas. And I think what I would say to young mothers is kind of get over that. You know, you really have to get over that perception that this this needs to be done in a certain way. And if you're not doing it that certain way, you are wrong. There is so much that a child gains from having a parent being self-actualized and um, in a career of their own. It's such a great role model. My daughter is always saying to me, oh, you modeled this for me. And, um, and that's you know, she might say, yeah, it was a really hard to live with it, but you modeled it for me. And now I know that I could do this too. And I think that that can be very, very important. Well, and I think just speaking of those younger women, uh, the, the women of our generation who worked out parenting and work and everything else is all you younger women have turned out just fine. So so somehow it all came together right. in the end. Right. right. And my mother was a, a real feminist. She was a professor. She had five children and taught full time. Um, she was kind of the first wave of feminism where it was like, I'll do everything. And I'm definitely the second wave, which is I can't do everything. So I'm going to pick my battles really carefully and see that I can do the best. And I'm not exactly sure how women are doing it now, but (laughs) (laughs) since I can only speak of my own experience, but I, I did see in my mother a kind of myth that women could have it all. They could be mothers. They could have a career. They could have successful marriages. They wouldn't have to give up anything. And I think that is not certainly not accurate for me. And it was something um, that I could see her really struggling with. Now we're on the subject of mothers. Mm -hmm. Um, Your childhood was rather unusual. Are you okay sharing those unusual events? 
Absolutely. Although I, I would really want people to go read the book so they can experience it uh, anew. <laughs> We're going to uh, yeah discuss that book shortly. Yeah. So I was born in Sweden. I was born at the beginning of the 50s. And when I was six months old, I was placed into a foster home uh, at the, the bottom tip of Sweden in Malmö, which is very close to Copenhagen. And um, I lived there for three years. So until I was about three and a half, I was very happy in that family. My mother was Solveig and my father was Torsten and I had three brothers. Um, I was the youngest of the three. And the youngest of those three boys was just a couple months older than I was. So we were brought up as twins. And apparently I directed traffic and I was the adored girl. You know, I was the only girl and I was adored by everyone. And then one day, a beautiful young woman uh, came and visited. Uh, she uh, decided to live in the community for about a month. And she adopted me and took me to America and married uh, my stepfather and had four more children. So then I became the oldest of five. And I always knew I was adopted. It wasn't talked about very much. Certainly, my mother never distinguished between me and the other kids. If anything, she probably was a little closer to me because I was the oldest. And she certainly corralled me into taking care of the younger ones a lot. And, you know, she had her professorship and my stepfather treated me differently. There was clearly a preference to his own natural children than to me. But I didn't think about it month, much, although I, I kind of had a childhood where I knew I was loved, but it didn't feel complete. It didn't feel like it, it grounded me. I always felt that somehow I didn't belong. And because I never spoke of it, or if I tried to speak of it, my mother wouldn't let me. I mean, I remember one time when I was about 10, I turned to her and I said, oh, and I had this sudden realization that adopted meant either your parents gave you up or they died. And I said, is this true? And I looked up at her and she had such a horror stricken look on her face. I thought, wow, you know, my kid intuition went, you were, and she said, yes, that is true. That's what adopted means. But that look on her face, I thought, oh, that's not a subject I can talk about. So when I was in college, when I was 21, I got a job in Sweden, of all places, taking care of a 13-year-old daughter of a family, a friend. I was there all summer. And right at the end, I thought, oh, maybe I'll go to the adoption agency and find out who my parents are. You know, I had, I had thought, oh you know, maybe I'm Swedish, who knows? So I called up the Swedish adoption agency because my mother had told me I was adopted through the Swedish adoption agency. And they said, oh no, they never would have allowed a Swedish national to be adopted by someone outside of the country. They did not allow for their children to be taken out of the country. They wanted to keep them safe in, in Sweden. They said, but call us back. I know you're about to leave on your flight, but call us back, you know, just before you leave. And maybe we have information. 
So I called them back and they said, oh, thank God you called back. We never thought we'd find stuff, but come down right away. We have information for you. And so I went down and she was reading this letter to me. And finally she said, your adopted mother is your birth mother. So I suddenly realized, you mean my adopted mother is my birth mother? I, I mean, I couldn't get my mind around it for a while. I just didn't compute. And I left, I don't know, it was a period of time where my whole world just turned upside down. I had had so many attachments to this word called adoption, so much sense of not being connected. And then I found out that empirically it wasn't true. This was my birth mother. So what did reality mean? If I'd sort of oriented myself this way and found out that actually my orientation was over here, it was so confusing. So I I went back and I immediately told my mother. And she had very wisely adopted me. She'd actually done it officially, even though she was my birth mother. She officially adopted me under Swedish law so as to be able to bring me back in the 50s as her child and not have, she was very worried she'd lose her job. Because in those days, women who had illegitimate children were, it was really frowned on. It was a very difficult situation. So she was very smart about this. But then she kept it a secret. She didn't tell her husband. She didn't tell her mother. She told no one. And I think because she had kept it such a secret, she started to get more and more paranoid about it, more and more worried that this would ruin her life. Uh, this, this would change everything. And then she started to think, well, it really wasn't her daughter's story. It was her story. It really had nothing to do with me because she had kind of created this life that was circumventing. You know, when you have a secret like that, if something comes up, you have to kind of make another excuse or you have to create another piece of the story. And I think she had just become so invested in that, that she was not able to have a lot of uh, perspective. And she was very angry at me. I wanted to tell my siblings. I wanted, you know, I was so excited about having connections. And she said, nope, nope, I don't want you to tell them. They're too young. I did insist that she tell my stepfather. And of course, when I started to think about it, I knew immediately who my biological father was. And in fact, it turned out that when I was in my last year of high school, well, it was actually in my last three years of high school, my mother said, oh, I want you to go to this boarding school in Philadelphia. You know, you really need to get out of this small town. You need to have an education. Da, 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 da. Much rather go to a music school. I don't know why I have to go to this school. Okay. So when I was a senior, she said, oh, 
I really, uh, you have this invitation from this family. It's an old family friend and they want you to live in their family while you're doing your last year of high school and it will really save in expenses. So I lived with his family in Philadelphia and I lived there for a year without knowing he was my father. I lived in that family and the first three or four months were pretty good, but then the the parents really started having a lot of arguments and I suspect they were about me. And so it was a very confusing thing uh, for me with all these over layers of secrets and yeah, it took me, it was a lot for me to handle. Oh, I bet. So at what point in time did you figure out that this man was your biological father? I, as I lay in bed in Sweden, sort of trying to digest this information, I thought, oh, I wonder who the father was. And then I'm going, oh, of course, this family that I lived with, the father. Because he'd always... You know, he was so good to me. You know, he always treated me like a family member. You know, he'd always give me a little kiss when he was kissing all the other kids. And so I'm like, oh, that's probably who it is. That made sense. Yeah. As you were telling that story, I'm thinking if if you created a fictional novel, people would go, holy crikey, she's got an imagination. Like, that's just crazy. Yes. But it's, it's, yeah, it's your lived reality. That's, uh... and I think that it is, you know, I don't want to, you know, pummel my mother. She was an amazing teacher, such a bright and vibrant person, amazing violinist. She loved her, her children. She really lived to educate them. She really believed in education and reading to them and taking us to museums and all sorts of adventure. But it made me realize as as an adult how important emotional honesty is and that without it, I'm sort of cutting off my arms if I want to be an artist, that to be able to perceive what my emotions are and be willing to say, oh, I could have done that better or wow, you know, I hear You know, if my daughter says something about her childhood, you know, I hear that was really hard for you. I am so sorry. I didn't know how to do it better at that point, but I'm working on it now. I'm really, you know, that that's the only thing I can promise you is that I did this in the past. I made a mistake. I was wrong. I didn't know how to do it better or whatever but it's over. I can't do anything about this. And all I can do is promise you that I'm working on it so that I never do that again. Um, I take responsibility for it. And that responsibility includes figuring out how I can, you know, do better. And uh, so I think that's what I have learned from my mother is that, first of all, secrets I write in my book, they they become your own personal Frankenstein. They're clanging about in the closet. They're wrecking things. You know, sometimes they force you to enact or do things that you don't even want to do. So 
you're always entitled to privacy, always entitled to privacy. My mother was entitled to privacy, but having a secret like that about someone else's is damaging. I was going to ask if you could connect the dots, but maybe I need to ask if there are dots to connect between all of that period of time as especially a teen into your early 20s and your life as a composer. Are there dots to connect? Like, does one affect the other? Well, certainly, as uh, up until my th- 30s, I suffered greatly from severe depressions. I was a happy dissociator. I could dissociate. I didn't realize I was doing it, but I could dissociate from a a situation that triggered me in some sort of way that felt unsafe so easily. I I could lose myself. And I think in a funny way that made me a good musician too, uh, that ability to go elsewhere. But I think in terms of my music, the first 10 years of my composing after I graduated from college So I've been writing music for 45 years. So the first 10 years, I think I was writing music that was so disconnected from myself because I didn't know myself. I didn't, once I had uh, found out uh, about my not adoption at 21, I kind of put it away. I just said, okay, that's over. And I went on and it was then at my birth of my daughter when I started really doing therapy and started to think about that. And then my music started to become something that I really related to. I was very excited about it, but there was a lot of sort of anguish in that second 10 years of writing, a lot of exploring, a lot of, I wrote pieces with titles like Dark Child Sings, which was about sort of my dark child in me. Uh, I have another piece for multiple saxophones called Transparent Victims. So victims that are walking around in the world, but you can't really see. And then in my third decade of writing music, I really had to decide artistically if what allowed me to compose was this darkness or if I could give it up and write about things that was more positive. So in a way, you could almost say that my addiction, that I had a kind of an addiction to depression, or maybe slightly addiction to drama, or to trauma, that I think in the healing process, you know, uh, there's a wonderful quote, and I don't know, I think Stephen Levine said it, that illness is a great teacher, but like all great teachers, you have to let them go. So this trauma was a great teacher for me, but I had, I think in my uh, in my late 30s and 40s, I had to decide whether I was going to keep myself in that grasp or move away from it. And that was kind of a scary thing for me to do because Maybe depression and trauma was my creative muse, you know, who knew? But what happened in that process is I was able to start looking at writing music about things that were outside of myself. And what I was really interested in 
was a larger spiritual connection with the world, a larger attachment to the world, a larger attachment to things that I didn't know about. And I started to write pieces. Uh, one of the titles of a string quartet is called It Is My Heart Singing. And then I wrote another piece called uh, Delight of Angels. So I was pushing that boundary into things that I didn't know about, that I wanted to know about. And what I love about my music is I always feel that I am throwing all of me into the music and that I am informing the music. But there's so many times when the music stops me and teaches me something about myself that I didn't know. And there is something wonderful about that kind of reciprocal relationship. As you started that explanation, I was thinking that it was almost like two parallel universes. Mm -hmm. But then it sounds like both universes almost hit the ice and you were just in and out and all over the place and round about and like just just always sliding perhaps for lack of a better mm -hmm. term uh in between or amongst the two worlds put it that way yes yes so i'm um yeah and so that's for the last 20 25 years that's sort of where my direction in my music is been is uh on the personal but how it goes out into the world more of a a world view uh, of how I relate to the world rather than this how I relate to myself so yeah okay the memoir uh, mm. it's I, I've got notes here it's been described as uh, and I quote lyrical reckoning with what it takes to compose a life of cohesion and beauty out of shattered bits and broken stories that sounds like monumental <laughs> how did you just sort of tie it all together like that or is that your composing life you know i i have to say i started writing this at the end of my second marriage and when i was choosing to leave the safety of that marriage and as an older woman, renegotiate my relationship with the world. And, you know, I was, I was kind of homeless for about four years. I lived in various apartments and rented houses. And, and when I finally decided where I was going to live and uh, bought a house that, that is just amazing in its ability to, to have uh, I, I teach music and composition and to, so I have my teaching studio and my composing studio here. I love to garden. And I think writing the book at the beginning of that huge transition uh, was very important. It was almost as if I was sort of picking up all the pieces of my life and weaving them together and representing myself to the world uh, and to myself. So I I think that that review is very astute in that that is part of the creative urge is to pull all these threads together and create a weaving of some sort. I mean, a single thread has very little meaning. 
And you can create something really beautiful out of different threads that are all over the place, you know, that, that don't have any cohesion in themselves. And so I think uh, writing this was very important to this part of my life, sort of stabilizing myself, owning my own story. When I think uh, my mother had always wanted to own my story, she wanted to be the author of my story and curate you know, curate what other people knew about me. And I think to really wanting to articulate my artistic process. So the book is written where there's one chapter will be a story about my life. And then the next chapter are actually from my journals. So I, I was a copious, I wrote, wrote and wrote and wrote. It was part of my music process is to write in my journal every, every day. And I had a music journal, I had a personal journal, and I had a spiritual journal. I had journals all over the place. And I pulled those together. And every other chapter is a year of journals that is both about my composing and reflecting on my childhood, because I'm also at that point going through therapy. So you get these every other, and slowly, Towards the end of the book, those stories become more and more co cohesive and more co connected. And I have to say, of all the journal writing I did, my publisher said, by the way, how, how much, what's the percentage of the journal do you think you put in your book? And I said, ooh, 5%, maybe, maybe 4%. She said, yes. <laughs> Because, you know, most of your journals, my journals at least, are just sort of like, oh, I hate you. <laughs> you know, <laughs> how could you do this? Oh, it's raining. <laughs> you know, oh, it's snowing. And yes, occasionally there was a beautiful sentence or something that I was really, a lot of times I would write about something and then a week later I'd write about it again. Or, or you know, so that, I, you know, since it was my journal, I didn't care. And uh, sometimes when I was editing that, I would put things together, but mostly I was just deleting, you know, just taking out so much of this stuff. I mean, really nuts. Uh, I have books and books and journals and journals, and they're not that interesting. <laughs> but there, there is always some pith there. There, you know, you, you you know, if you read your own journals, you can say, oh yeah. Yeah. Oh, I'd forgotten that. Yes, that was very significant. And I really liked how I'm, I'm talking about that. Uh, and then page after page, it's like, oh, nothing. <laughs> the, um, the visual that came to mind as you were explaining that with the threads was many threads make a tapestry as mm -hmm. opposed to, you know, just pulling three pieces and you got a braid and, you know, any, right. anybody can do the braid. But to create right. the tapestry is uh, a work of art. And I think um, I do write it. I did a lot of traveling out West and there were times where I had this feeling that of the tapestry of my life, I had in my hand just a piece and that's all I could see. I knew it was connected to a larger thing and I could almost imagine, you know, I might be able to look over uh, vertically, but I couldn't do the horizontal. I couldn't get the, but I knew that it was all connected in some sort of way. And um, that all I had was what I could see at that moment. But I think that, again, getting back to that quote, I certainly, when I grew up, 
uh, there were so many pieces of me that when I was doing therapy that I had to go back and collect parts of me that had been lost or had been silenced. And so, yes, integrating myself and, and how integration in my music sounds has always been very important to me. I would write for years. I wrote a lot of music where it seemed like all the ensemble members were playing lots of different things. And then slowly they would start playing things together. And that certainly is a, a great metaphor for, for when you start to get healed or, or feel like you've got more control of things. You start feeling like you can be acting as as one rather than as many. That might be a really good segue. What I read about the book, because I haven't read it yet, um, is you, you write about forgiveness, grieving, and spiritual connection mm-hmm. in the memoir. How do those come together within you? And, and what does that look like in your life? Yes. Well, certainly, I've talked a little bit about the spiritual connection. And again, the more I've learned to be connected to myself, the more I have available to be connected to other things. So I don't know if it's, it's never been a two way street for me. I could never not be connected to myself, but also connected to spiritual. You know, it really is about interior reconnection offers me more availability for exterior connection. And to me, that's what a spiritual value is, is connection to something that's outside of me. What was the other thing you asked? (laughs) (laughs) No, just about forgiveness, forgiveness, yeah, and grieving. You know, the book used to be called Grief's Grace, because I always felt that as I journeyed uh, through a lot of my childhood stuff, I had to grieve. And in fact, one of the biggest things that I had to grieve about that was a total surprise for me, I would never have imagined it, is that my family in Sweden that I walked away from, that I was led away from, was my family. For three years, it was my entire existence as far as I knew. And walking away was as if they all died in a terrible, fiery car crash, and they were gone, and there was nothing left of them. And I didn't have the language as a a three-and-a-half-year-old and my mother certainly didn't want me to remember Sweden. So I never had any chance to process that. So when I started to uncover the, the emotional depth of, of my adoption uh, when my daughter was born, uh, and of course, that's what kids do to you. They wake up the little kid in you. I was confronted and just so surprised about how much grief I had for the loss of my Swedish mother, for the loss of Solveig. And it just, I just opened up tears uh, for me. I just wept and I wept for years. I wept at that loss. And I went back, I took my daughter back to Sweden when she was three and a half. It was a great way for me to see what does a three and a half year old look like? What do they understand? How do they speak? And really at three and a half, they're pretty evolved. 
you know, uh, they they can talk and they can relate. It's it, so. And then when she was ten, we went back and we lived in Sweden for about uh, four or five weeks, and very close to my foster family. Unfortunately, when I started this journey to be reconnected with them, my foster mother had just died. So it was sort of, I felt I had been 30 years without her and just missed her by months. And that was very painful. So the act of grieving and getting through your grief, um, and that's partly what the title is about, Let Your Heart Be Broken. It's about allowing the heartbreak that we all have. We all have heartbreak, but allowing it to be in our lives, not to hide it or try to disguise it or pretend it's not there. That really, it's sort of like trauma. The only way to get through the trauma is to get, is to walk through it. Uh, you can't walk around it, at least not in my experience. So the grieving, and the grace that comes with grieving, it's its really quite amazing. It's sort of like a mitzvah that you don't deserve, you know? Um, it's just not that the grief ever goes away completely. But I in the book, I talk about it like uh, at first grief is like a, a terrible monsoon, just a terrible downpour and you know, there are floods and things get destroyed. And finally, the rain lets off a little bit and you feel a little bit. But then there's a terrible downpour again. And eventually, over the years, the rain stops. Maybe there is a beautiful sort of misty sunrise and then it starts to rain again. But the rain is not that hard. It's more gentle. Maybe you even enjoy walking in it. So to me, that's what grief is. And then sometimes it's just almost the remembrance, remembrance of that rain. Uh, or you wake up and you just feel a little moist or dewy. You know, you have that. To me, grief feels, has a sort of sensation in my body. Forgiveness was quite a discovery for me. I didn't come to it happily or I came to it reluctantly. Let's put it that way. But at some point I had a dream that I was down in the basement and in Philadelphia where I lived, that house was very old. It had, it didn't have concrete floors in the basement. And so it was dirt floor and, you know, the basement always kind of smelled musty or kind of like it had fungus growing in it probably did. And I dreamt I was in the basement and I was having to pull this huge object behind me. And I was, it was pulling on the string and it was digging into my shoulder and breaking the skin. And finally I looked back and I realized it was, it was something in a great big long bag and it looked like a human being. And I thought, oh my gosh, I'm dragging my anger for my stepfather around in the basement. And I need to get out of here. So I'd heard of forgiveness and I decided I would create my own forgiveness. Um, and I I had a, a, I was a single parent, but when my daughter went to school, I could walk the dog. 
and it was an American Staffordshire Bull Terrier. So it was very vigorous, very strong, and always pulling my arm out of the socket. And I decided I would say my forgiveness is when I would walk the dog. So at 40th Street, we started and I would forgive myself for I forgive all the easy people, myself, my daughter, my neighbors, my friends, my co-workers, you know, it just went up the hill. And then by the time I got to 49th Street and my dog had been pulling at me and I was hot and I would like start with my mother and I would just spit it out. It was like, I, I can't believe I have to forgive you, but I forgive you. And then I would do my 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 stepfather. And I think I, I always say that I single-handedly terrorized a whole neighborhood. You know, every morning at eight, there she was. Oh my God, that crazy woman is coming. What I loved is that I committed to saying, I forgive you for a year while I walked the dog, but I didn't have to mean it. All I had to do was say it because I couldn't quite mean it at that point. But there's a wonderful thing that happens when you say something over and over again. It's, are you rewiring your brain or hypnotizing yourself or I don't know. But then I noticed things. I could be with my stepfather and not run out of the room because I couldn't breathe. Uh, I could be with my parents at Christmas and they gave me a present and I was able to say thank you. I was able to care for them when they started to get really old, help in their care. Uh, my brother and my sister did most of the care, but I could come up and give them respite care. And I could do it with an open heart. It didn't restore that relationship that I felt I had lost with them. It didn't restore me to that sweetness of childhood love for my, my mother and stepfather. But I, I could be kind to them. And that was huge. That was so huge. So I do recommend forgiveness. It's not about them. It's about me and how I can be more peaceful with myself and open up space for myself so I can do other things. As we've been talking every once in a while, well, more than once in a while, you've said something and I've had this little, you know, light bulb of like nugget, <laughs> nugget. And and I, I hope our listeners have, have done that too. And if, if you didn't go back and listen again. <laughs> now our listeners are primarily midlife women like mm -hmm. you and me. Do you have any thoughts about this chapter that you think mid-age women should think about or embrace? I mean, forgiveness is a huge one. I think we should all embrace that mm -hmm. and, or get to a place where we can embrace it. Yes. But, I think legacy is an important word for all people our age. I'm talking 60 and older. 65 and older, 70 and older, <laughs> um, that we have given gifts to this world. And it's important maybe for ourselves to document it in some way. I have a wonderful friend. And one of the things she's doing for each of her children and for the family, so she's created some for the family 
at large, but also for each of her individual children, is a photo book. She goes back and she takes photos of the child and talks about it and creates a whole book of photos that, and then talks to their her child and sees what more, how would they like to edit it? And it's, I just think it's such a gift of love to create something that her child and her grandchildren can really have as, as a real token of legacy about how she was an, a parent and and her relationship with her daughter or her son. I think that is just such an amazing example of legacy. I know that my stepfather loved to go into histories of the Davidsons and, you know, how they came to America. And a lot of people are very interested in that. And I think that is also part of genealogy and a part of part of legacy. Right now, I am, I think, writing this memoir, Let Your Heart Be Broken, is part of my legacy. It is really talking about my life and my music. And um, I do have a commitment now to go through all my works and catalog them, make sure all the mistakes have been corrected, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but, you know, uh, part of my legacy that I've learned from my mother and stepfather is to get rid of my stuff in advance <laughs> so that my kids doesn't have to do that. I think part of that legacy is also, you know, which I think so many people do well is, you know, an enduring, an enduring commitment to their grandchildren, to their kids in terms of reaching out and being in relationship with them. But I, I think that's a, a vital, important part. Also, right now I'm starting a group with other women composers where older women composers would be in a way of sharing information with younger composers. So again, this is about sharing legacy and sharing what I've learned. If it's meaningful for you, you know, here it is. If it's meaningful for you, great. And if you don't, if it's not meaningful to you, okay, fine. You know, you can just pass it on. But I think those things for me right now are really meaningful. How I take care of myself so that I'm not going to be a burden with my kids is, is really important to me as well. I'm in touch on occasion with Sherry Lynn Starkey, 50 Women Over 50. Oh. On, on her podcast, you talked about joy, sharing one's joy. <sighs> Can you go there? I can. So one of uh, somebody who interviewed me asked me to put together a list of 10 things that I would want to share with somebody else. And so I started writing also a secondary list of many things that I'd want to share to another artist or composer, you know, and there are things like be with people who say yes, if you have creative aspiration and your friends are not supporting you, find new friends. There's some really sort of practical things, um, you know, that uh, you can do. I always suggest journal every day, find words to articulate your inner thoughts and make and work, make it part of your daily practice. Uh, dive deep into yourself, ask yourself questions, even do therapy. What holds you back? What are the voices inside of you that give you negative commentary? I have some of those still. And when they get on the loose, those voices inside of me, it's just like, whoa, what are you doing? 
go, <laughs> go. <laughs> what? <laughs> so I had two things that I think, especially as we are in this stage of our life, when I shared with her and her wonderful podcast, share your joy, communicate your love of the work with others, share rather than teach, motivate rather than lecture, include rather than talk to. Teaching implies a hierarchy. Sharing is between equals. And then the last one I had on this list, uh, and I just, I you notice it's in two pieces of paper. So I was, this was scrap paper, but it's just never made it to the recycling bin. Dare to create yourself anew. Heartbreak, failure, being sidelined, all of these are part of life. It is how we act on these, manage them, learn, move through them, and dare to try again in strengthened position that matters. And I think that is for any of us at any stage of our life, particularly now. You know, dare to create create yourself anew. Life can be difficult. It happens to all of us. And um, my experience is it's been far better to go through the difficult process of dealing with it than to avoid it. So dare to create yourself anew. What's next for Tina Davidson? Does she know? Well, I am loving the challenge of continuing to publicize this book. Again, I think that's hard for women. You know, it's one thing to write the book, but then we have to publicize it. We have to talk about ourselves. And I think it's a little bit like having children. You know, there is going to take a lot more than you ever thought to launch your kids. And you're willing to do it, whatever it takes. You know, you just, you know, that's your commitment. It's the long run, not the short run. Um, So I'm doing that. I have uh, some concerts coming up that are very exciting. I have been invited to talk at some conferences as well. So the idea of continuing to articulate some of these things for myself and for others is, is very exciting. I have two recordings coming out probably at the beginning of next year of new works, newer works. So works in the last 10 years. And that always takes a huge amount of dedication to find the performers, get them through the recording process. Then you have to edit it and then you have to market it. You have to, you know, get it out there. Uh, But again, it's, you know, part of the work that I do is uh, the creative process includes more than just creating. It's also about sharing the creation. Sharing the joy, sharing the creation. Yes, (laughs) yes, yes. Okay, where do we find your book? Oh, easy peasy. Amazon.com, Tina Davidson, Let Your Heart Be Broken, Life and Music from a Classical Composer. You can always reach me through my website, which is tinadavidson.com, not hard. And I'm certainly on Facebook, Tina Davidson, composer and author. I believe it's that uh, on Instagram. 
um, on Spotify, wherever you listen to your music, if it's Apple Music or Spotify, I don't even know where all it is, but you just find it's easy to find. So if you're if you're connected to the Internet, you will be connected to me. Okay, I'm just scrolling down my notes now because you've just covered off all of the closing questions I had for you. <laughs> um, and how I arrange things is your website link will be in the show notes. All of the links are going to be on your page on the website. Excellent. So oh, this has been such a pleasure. What a pleasure. <laughs> thank you so much. No, thank you. And let me nag our listeners for just a moment. Listeners, I'm going to set a precedent today and not encourage you to leave comments. I want you to go purchase Tina's book and be moved and embrace her philosophy. You can still leave stars and reviews where you can. Those help us grow. Share this episode. Tina's life has been extraordinary, and she's created a library of beauty out of it. And we could all learn from that. Tina Davidson, thank you for being my guest today and sharing your story and your inspiration with us. Oh, my total pleasure. Thank you. Have a great rest of the week. Thank you. You too. Thank you.